are continuing our, our marriage series today. We've traced marriage from creation to consummation. And we saw that God created marriage to image Christ's union with his people. And then we looked at the husband's role in headship and the wife's complementary role in submission. I tried to illustrate this with, with a dance. The husband leading and the wife following and the two delighting in each other. And as they delight in each other, their, their marriage in this age points to another marriage in the age to come, that of Christ with his people. Occasionally, though, spouses step on each other's feet in the dance. The husband doesn't lead as he's supposed to lead. Perhaps his moves are too fast, too harsh. Perhaps he forgets the rhythm of the gospel music. The wife struggles to follow him. Sometimes she misunderstands his gestures and other times the hurt and frustration she experiences makes her want to quit this now so-called dance. Today is a message that I pray will help you stay in the dance. We're going to be talking about our sin against each other and the hope that we have by God's grace in Christ. My prayer is that today helps marriages in this room shine our Redeemer's covenant-keeping love into a world that's darkened by convenience and by selfishness and by divorce. Whether you're married or not, much of what I have to say today is, is just as applicable to relationships beyond marriage. And for those of you who are single, let me just say thank you for your patient listening the last several weeks. Next Sunday, we'll spend the whole time looking at a biblical perspective on singleness. But today, let me tell you where we're going. Ephesians, the whole letter, will, will be our base text. A couple of weeks back, I said, you know, let's, let's not get so focused on the marriage passage in Ephesians 5 that we forget Ephesians. It's got a context, and I want to show you some very powerful truths from Ephesians for your marriage and really any relationship. And we'll also be getting some help from, from uh, the prophet Hosea along the way. And I've sought to organize everything under six headings that begin with P today, if you're into alliteration. So something we've already seen is that the purpose of marriage is to glorify God. That's the first P. The purpose of marriage is to glorify God. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul celebrates God's work of grace through our union with Christ. He's talking about our election before the foundation of the world, our predestination for adoption, our forgiveness of sins, the redemption by his blood, and on and on he, he goes. But but three times he makes the ultimate goal of Christ's union with his people very explicit. You can see it in verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Then again in verse 12, speaking of how God made us his inheritance 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then again in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So three times Paul says that the ultimate purpose of Christ saving us and uniting us to himself is the praise of God's glory. Now, if you keep that in mind, just hold that there and turn over to Ephesians 5.32, where Paul explicitly says that marriage, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If marriage is, is meant to image Christ's union with his people, then what's the purpose of marriage? It is to glorify God. Marriage is a temporary parable about an all-glorious God and his all-glorious love for sinners in Christ. And we have to keep this before us. A husband's relationship to his wife is always telling a story. It is always telling a story. The question is, do our marriages tell the story about God's glory in Christ accurately? Would others looking into our marriages know it's the glory of Christ that makes us tick? That, as Andrew Peterson would say, keeps us dancing in the minefields and sailing in the storms. Now, it could be that you're truly striving to glorify God in your marriage, but your spouse just isn't interested he or she doesn't know Christ. Let me say here at the front that that doesn't mean that you can't glorify God in your marriage. Your marriage actually may give you an, an even greater opportunity for people to witness God's, what God's relentless love is like. Including your spouse to witness what God's relentless love is like. The point being here is that whatever state your marriage is in, the purpose of it is to bring glory to God in it. There is one problem, however, the problem of sin and self-centeredness in marriage. The problem of sin and self-centeredness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, speaks of this. I'll start in verse 1. You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is how we come into the world. Titus 3.3 3 says that sin results in being hated by others and hating one another. In Romans 1.29, when we trade the, the glory of God, we trade His glory to love the creation above Him, we become full of, it says, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, and gossip, all of which have horizontal, talking about horizontal, uh, horizontal problems in our relationships. In other words, as sin separates us from God, 
It also separates us from one another this way. Sin takes our focus off of living for God's glory and puts the focus on living for self-glory. Sin turns us in on ourselves. Everything becomes about me, myself, and I, what she is not giving me, what he is not doing for me, what they did to me. It's impossible to love God and love others when our chief focus is self. It's impossible to bring God glory in the way we treat our spouse when we want the glory. A newspaper article once invited readers from all over the world to answer this one big question. What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton responded with this brief reply. Dear sirs, I am. Our greatest problem in any relationship is our own sin and self-centeredness. If we fail to embrace the truth about our own sin and its destructive nature, then we'll also fail to embrace God's solution in Christ. A wrong diagnosis of your problem will lead to a wrong treatment of your problem. Instead of addressing the sin in your own heart for what it truly is as rebellion against God, you'll seek to justify sinful actions. Instead of acknowledging your own sin with humility, you will blame your spouse for all your problems. Marriages will not heal as long as both spouses are pointing the finger at each other as the problem without any willingness to accept responsibility for and repent from their own sins. A good theology of sin, a right understanding of our own sinfulness will help our marriages and it will help all of our relationships. Whenever conflict rises, a good theology of sin will lead us to humbly suspect ourselves first. Humbly suspect ourselves first. We're bent toward self-righteousness, toward thinking too highly of of ourselves, and the cross teaches that we have no righteousness apart from Christ. Even for the Christian, the power of sin's reign was broken, but... But that doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with sin's remains. That's that's why Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 4 to believers, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So when your spouse confronts you about sin... Your first reaction, what's, what's your first reaction like? What's, what's the impulse? Well, you did. Or if you would just. Or maybe you say nothing and you just stew over it all day long, maybe for weeks at a time. A good theology of sin should lead us to step back humbly even if the other person has sinned as well, and consider whether our own motivations were pure, whether our own words imparted grace, and whether all that's in us truly pleases Jesus in the situation. 
Jesus taught, How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your own eye, when you have a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That means get alone with God. Open your Bible. Pray like David prays, search me and know me and see if there be any grievous way in me. Welcome your spouse's input. The same with other relationships in the church. Somebody addresses your sin, somebody points something out, get alone with God, open your Bible and pray, search me. Welcome their input. A good theology of sin will also lead us to accept that circumstances reveal already existing sin. Circumstances reveal already existing sin. This water bottle is filled with water. Watch what happens when I shake it up. What's inside comes out when the circumstances get tough. We often tend to blame our circumstances or other people outside of us for our sinful responses. I spoke harshly because she said this. I get impatient because he does this. It's his neglect. It's her nagging. They make me like this. They trigger this in me. This becomes even easier when we live in a culture teaching that people are fundamentally good. And that the problem is not inside, but outside of us. So instead of addressing the real problem in the heart, couples end up with superficial solutions. Instead of repenting from anger inside, they try to change all of the so-called triggers on the outside. Instead of repenting from unbiblical expectations that they are placing on their spouse that are often rooted in idolatry, they just negotiate settlements. Well, you can do this if you give me that. But Jesus says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Anger comes from the heart. James 4 says that the passions that are at war in us cause quarrels and fights. When circumstances get tough with our spouses and we sin, they are not to blame for our sin. We are to blame. A good theology of sin will teach us that the biggest problem in marriage is not outside of me, but it is inside of me. But the Bible gives so much more than just an understanding of our problem. It also gives us great hope. Who will deliver us? Well, God delivers us by grace. And he does this in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Let's look now at the peace in marriage through Christ. There are two kinds of peace we need as humans. Our greatest need is peace with God. We read that earlier in Ephesians 2. We are by nature children of wrath. That means we're separated from God. We are God's enemies. 
If we lack peace with God, then, then we won't be peaceful toward others, and we'll also forfeit our souls to an eternity of separation from God under punishment. But Romans 5 says that we obtain peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By relying on Jesus to save us, God forgives our sins and also gives us his righteousness. We talked about this last week. We call this justification. Romans 5.1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also need peace with one another. So God brings about peace with one another also through the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says that for Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, in this instance, Paul is talking about uh, specifically about how Jesus' death not only reconciles people to God, but also reconciles Jew and Gentile in one body into one new humanity. But it has much broader applications. I mean, if the cross overcomes our greatest obstacle, which is our separation from God, and if the cross tears down some of the biggest barriers so that Gentiles like us can be welcomed into God's covenant people, you think it's powerful enough to unite a husband and a wife? You think it's powerful enough to unite Christians to one another? If the cross has bridged the greatest divide between us and God, then surely it can reconcile sinners to each other. And there are many ways the Bible talks about the cross doing this, but just a few of them. I mean, the cross does this, first of all, by, by killing self-righteousness in us. That self-righteousness that would keep, keep us putting ourselves above others and putting others down and looking down our noses at them. We, we, but the cross says that we're, we all stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross. None of us being more righteous than the other. The cross also brings peace by breaking down our bondage to self-centeredness. Breaks our bondage to self-centeredness. Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, verse fifteen says, "Christ died for all, that those who live." might no longer live for themselves. Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Well, who are they living for? But for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, peace comes when we're not competing for our own individual kingdoms and our own individual agendas and we're all ordering our lives around Christ's agenda, Christ's kingdom. Another way the cross brings peace is that it gives us God himself. It gives us God himself, which leads to another P here. The the power for marriage comes by the Spirit. The power for marriage comes by the Spirit. Look at chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 16 to 19. This is a prayer of Paul's for the church. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened 
with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Holy Spirit's job is to strengthen our inner being with the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Meaning he takes the the objective, unchanging truth about God's love in Christ and he, he makes it so real to our inner self, our inner being, our, our soul, that it transforms us from the inside out. It, it makes us new. It compels us to, to treat others differently, to, to treat them as we see how God has treated us in Christ. So this is why, if you look over at chapter 5 of Ephesians, before Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands, before he tells husbands to love their wives, before he tells children to obey their parents, before he tells fathers not to provoke their children, before he tells slaves and masters, etc., and all these relationships he's listing out, before he says any of it, in chapter 5, verse 18, he says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. In other words, these other relationships aren't happening by themselves. Marriage ain't happening in your own strength. As Tim Keller describes it, trying to live together without the Spirit is like bringing together two vacuums. All you get is a stronger vacuum. We need God to fill us, God to satisfy us, God to strengthen us, God to give us joy, God to find true meaning and significance, not our spouse. Which means we ought to be praying as husbands and wives for the Spirit to fill us each day. We must look to the Spirit and His written Word to fuel our souls instead of exhausting our spouse and expecting our spouse to satisfy us and our spouse to make us happy. They can't do it. They can't give you what you need. They will fail miserably. We weren't made to live off of our spouse or off any other person. We were made to live off God. He is life itself. So we must be praying that God's Spirit opens our eyes to more of His glory and more of His grace and more of His love and more of of His mercy. He is the one who is more than enough. The peace we find in Christ also gives us the pattern for marriage. The pattern for marriage, which is God's love and forgiveness in Christ. 
Before we look at another text in Ephesians, let's get some help from Hosea. So if you want to turn with me to Hosea, chapter 1. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. First of the minor prophets there. Hosea begins in a, in a really shocking way. God asks Hosea to marry a harlot named Gomer. In chapter 1, verse 2, we read this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, some say that Gomer wasn't yet a harlot when Hosea married her. Others say that she already was a harlot. The point, though, is that God asks Hosea to marry a woman who flirted around with other men. She was always looking to shack up with another man. Hosea was to take this kind of woman and have children of whoredom, meaning he'd be raising some children that she has by another man. Only the son in verse 3 is identified as Hosea's son. For the rest, the real father goes unidentified. So this picture is, is scandalous. It makes us uneasy. It's supposed to make you uneasy when you, when you read it. Hosea is going into this relationship knowing that his wife is a cheater. But what we find out as we keep reading is that Hosea's real experience becomes an enacted prophecy. Hosea's marriage experience with Gomer is much like Yahweh's experience with Israel. You see, Israel has cheated on Yahweh, and, and not only has Israel cheated on Yahweh, but Israel has borne generations of children who have cheated on Yahweh, generations who have whored after other gods. In chapter 2, verse 5 of Hosea, you get a glimpse of it. He's talked about their children, and now he says this in verse 5, "...for their mother has played the whore." She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. What's, what's she doing here? She's chasing after whatever gives, gives her what she wants instead of after God who gives her all that she needs. She's trading again. Like Romans 1 says, she's trading the glory of her creator for the creation. And Israel's infidelity is so rampant that verses 6 and 7 uh, give us a picture of Yahweh having to hedge her in with thorns and build walls around her to keep her from getting out to all of her other lovers in the red light district. Now, because of this rampant harlotry, cheating on God with false worship, Several places in chapters 1 and 2 threaten Israel with judgment. So Gomer uh, ends up having three children, uh, Jezreel in verse 4, no mercy in verse 6 of 
chapter 1, not my people in verse 8. Each child's name represents the pending judgment of God. The first son reveals it will involve punishment. The next daughter foreshadows God removing his mercy from the people. And then the third son reveals that things are so bad that God refuses to even call them my people anymore. Now, something significant here is that these births are taking place over time, and it shows that how patient God is, where he could have just snuffed them out. He's giving them time, and with each birth, Hosea has another message of repentance to, to Israel. So he's being patient, holding out the opportunity for repentance. It doesn't come, and, and probably the worst of this section is the last line in chapter 2, verse 13. And Israel forgot me, declares the Lord. Israel forgot me, declares the Lord. So as the story goes, Israel would certainly have to endure judgment in the exile. But what makes the prophecy so remarkable is that God does not forget them altogether. I mean, at, look, look at verse 13 again. It ends this way, and Israel forgot me, and then jump to verse 14, and we get therefore, and we're expecting, well, therefore the Lord forgot her. That's what she deserves. Are you kidding me? How dare she treat her faithful husband that way? How dare she sleep around on him? But that's not what we get in verse 14. Verse 14, we get, therefore, behold, I will allure her. Despite all that she's done to him, God comes to her speaking these tender, romantic words to woo her back into a relationship with him. I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and, and make the valley of Achor a, a door of hope. Achor is that place where they punished Achan for his sin. And every time they pass by, it's just this big reminder of God's curse and condemnation. He's going to change this valley of Achor into a door of hope. And there, shall, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. She's got this new exodus rescue, a reversal of their fortunes. And in that day, declares the Lord, he says, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. So God will cleanse her from her idolatry. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the a ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in, in safety so all the earth is made right again for her to dwell in peace. Then he says this, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Verse 23. 
Notice the reversal of the names that he gave them in chapter 1. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Amazing, isn't it? How extravagant is is God's love here? After I mean, after all they did to offend Him and to dishonor Him, He He lavishes kindness on them. Not, not only does He bring back His wife, but He He does everything for her to make sure the marriage is going to be faithful now and righteous and holy. After experiencing His extravagant love and mercy, she doesn't even want to mention the the names of her past idols on her lips anymore. She's forgetting them altogether. Who can compete with the love of this husband? And based on this extravagant love, God then tells Hosea once again in chapter 3, verse 1, to go and love Gomer again. So we're kind of doing a flashback now in the present situation of Israel's obedience. And God is telling Hosea, even though Gomer has left you for other men and had children by other men, you go, Hosea, and you love her again. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Talk about blindness. I mean, they chose raisin bagels over the Holy One who spoke the universe into existence. And yet, God comes back with this relentless love for His elect. Now, where are we going with all of this? What does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with marriage? What does it have to do with us as a church? Well, Romans chapter 9 says that Hosea's words foreshadowed our salvation in Christ. Hosea is not just talking about Israel in general. He's talking about us. Paul is talking about Gentiles getting saved in Romans 9. And in verse 25, Romans 9, he says, Those who were not my people, us Gentiles, and last time I checked, nearly all of us in here are Gentiles. Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. We were once not a beloved people, folks. In our sin, there was nothing lovely about us. All of us are like Israel. Israel is a parable that explains our human condition. In our sin, we have whored after other gods. In our sin, we have eyes that roam. In our sin, we have demanded from our spouse expectations that not even God has for them. In our sin, we have so loved our money and our hobbies and our pets and our ministries and our me time and our sports that we snap at our spouse when they get in the way of them. 
Others of us have a past clouded by difficult divorce situations. Others have had love affairs with images on the internet or with images still etched in their minds. We deserve abandonment by God. We deserve to be forgotten by God. And yet, He remembers us. And yet, He allures us in Christ. He commits Himself to us. And yet, He loves us still. You see, it's not that He loves us only after the cross brushes us up a bit. He chose to love us, and it was his love for us that designed the cross to get us to him. That is an amazing love. He chose us. He he loves us simply because he chose to love us. While we were enemies, he sent Christ to die for us. And we find ourselves forgiven in him and loved in him. Now, now turn back with me to, chapter, to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 32. Ephesians four thirty-two. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You need to get this text etched in your mind and written on your heart for any relationship that you have, and especially your relationship with your spouse. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. That's the point here. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. Those those who have experienced God's mercy in Christ will extend mercy to others. Those who have experienced God's love in Christ will extend that same love towards others. We love because He first loved us. If you don't want to forgive, if you don't want to love, if all you do is tally up all the wrongs He keeps doing to you and keep an account of all the wrongs that she keeps doing to you, then you don't know God's forgiveness. That's a terrible place to be. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. The pattern for marriage, the pattern for relationships in this church must be love and forgiveness as we have seen that love and forgiveness demonstrated in Christ. In his book, When Sinners Say I Do, Dave Harvey writes, Have you ever thought that passing along mercy may be one of the main reasons that you're married. Mercy doesn't change the need to speak truth. It transforms our motivation from a desire to win battles 
to a desire to represent Christ. Mercy takes people who are capable of open warfare over toothpaste tubes and toilet seats. He's getting real here, isn't he? Mercy takes people who are capable of open warfare over toothpaste tubes and toilet seats and enlarges their vision to include a Savior. When the gospel enlarges our vision to include a Savior, we forgive and we love as God in Christ has forgiven and loved us. Love is not weak emotionalism or not, or, and it's not dispassionate duty. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 3.16 As we've said before here at Redeemer, love is a genuine affection for another's good in God such that we spend ourselves sacrificially to see them obtain that good. Love is a genuine affection. You you really, really want what's best for another person in God and such that you give it all up to see them prospering in that good in God. That's the love we find in Christ for us, and it's the love that should characterize us. So love won't passively wait to be asked. It will take initiative in seeking the well-being of your spouse. Love won't patiently wait to be asked, even in this church body. It will take the initiative in seeking the well-being of this Church, let me go back to the marriage part. Husbands, husbands, there are occasions when we might have to encourage our wives to tell us how we can better serve them. But if we find ourselves saying repeatedly, well, why didn't you just tell me all the time? Or if we hear our wives saying, I've said this a hundred times before, maybe we should ask ourselves, If the initiative-taking, bride-pursuing, sacrificial love of Christ is truly in us, how much of a vision for it do we truly have? If we don't, then we must repent and return to it again in the gospel and, and pray the Spirit makes us get it more. Love will, not, will also not make a hundred self-calculations before acting. You know, well, is it going to keep me from the game? Is, am I, is it going to keep me from going golfing three weeks from now? Will, will I have to give up my weekend for you? Love will consider the interests of your spouse. It will consider the interests of others as better than your own. Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Love will not primarily ask, well, why isn't she doing this for me? Or why isn't he doing this for me? But, but how can I pour myself out for him or her? Love will not keep your spouse at arm's distance after a conflict. It will, it will make all the necessary investments to see the other drawn near, the other wooed back the other forgiven and reconciled, the other prospering in the Lord. 
And yes, love will also endure even through times that the same love is not reciprocated. Isn't this what Jesus teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, if you love those who love you back, what good is that? What reward is there in that? The world can do that. Christ's love is much different. Jesus loved his own until the end, John 13 tells us, when nobody was reciprocating love to him. Not even his closest disciples reciprocated love. And yet he gave himself up for them. This kind of love, I will warn you, will hurt. This kind of love will cost you. As C.S. Lewis put it, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to nobody, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. When we love each other as the cross calls us to love each other, it will hurt and it will cost us. But this is the road that Jesus walked before us, and it is the road that Jesus is walking with us right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we love as he loved us, we image Christ to others, and we bring, God's, we bring glory to God's love and mercy towards us. In terms of forgiveness, when, when sin is confessed, we need to extend forgiveness to each other, knowing how much that we have been forgiven by God through Christ. Forgiveness means canceling the debt the other incurred by wronging you and so canceling it that you are free to pursue reconciliation with them happily and you are free to love them in the way that we talked about a while ago, being proactive in seeking their eternal good in God. If that's not present, you need to ask whether you've truly forgiven them and canceled the debt that stands between you and them. Paul Tripp writes, Healthy marriages are healthy because the people in those marriages find joy in canceling debts. I'd say the same is true for a local church. Healthy churches are healthy because the people in those churches find joy in canceling each other's debts. Do you find joy in canceling debts? 
Or do you make it your business to keep lists of wrongs that just breed and breed bitterness inside of you? Our memory verse this week is quite fitting. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook offenses. When your spouse comes to you and confesses sin, it's not time, nor is it your place to become the prosecuting attorney pointing out all the other failures. That's the work of the devil. Mercy, the Bible tells us, triumphs over judgment. You have the glorious opportunity to be a conduit of grace and of forgiveness in Christ. Not because the other person deserves it. That's the point of the gospel. But because the gospel of grace is about getting what we do not deserve. Since we have gotten what we don't deserve, we give away more to others we cancel their debt. Which brings us to one last point as we go into the Lord's Supper. The promise for marriage in the gospel. The promise for marriage in the gospel. By promise, I mean all the hope that the gospel message holds out for us in Christ. When we eat this meal today, we not only remember the peace made possible in Christ's work in the past. We not only remember the power that he gives us now by the Holy Spirit to to live out this pattern of love and forgiveness, we also remember the future glory that we will enjoy at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible says that as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's the promise. Christ is coming for us, brothers and sisters. The one who betrothed us to himself will come to to finalize everything about this marriage, including our Christ-likeness. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We're all works in progress. But the gospel promises a glorious future for those who belong to Jesus. No matter how much you've failed this week or over the last several years, perhaps, as a husband or a wife, no matter what chaos or divorce or adultery clouds your past, place your trust in Christ again for rescue today. Make this another opportunity to believe on him, and you will be saved. Based on his past work, he promises you present grace to bring you into future glory. Why don't we eat together on the note of that promise?